Father, thank you once again for bringing us here by your grace. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us as we dive into the difficult doctrine of divine impassibility. I pray that all that we have studied so far about who you are, God, will come to remembrance this evening. Keep me from error. Keep me from stumbling. Keep me from coming up with ways that, that, over, that overthink and that oversimplify who you are. You are you are in your being simple, but to us you are complex because that's how you have revealed yourself to us. I pray that this evening we will learn about this doctrine, but also we will feel comfort from this doctrine. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Since the 18th century Enlightenment, the classical view of the doctrine of God has been under attack. In fact, the status of theology proper in Christianity, more specifically, Calvinistic evangelicalism is very disturbing. Now, when I say Calvinistic evangelicalism, what I mean by that is those who are Christians but who are Calvinists, who hold to the five points of, of Calvinism. Um, and isn't it cool when you meet another Calvinist, like, you're, you're a Calvinist, I'm a Calvinist? Um, those, are the, those are the things I like to... When I want to discover people, Christians are Calvinists. But in the evangelical Calvinistic circles, theology proper is moving more toward a modified doctrine of God, a modified theology proper. And when I say, again, theology proper, what I mean by that is doctrine of God. Okay, Many men and women who come from confessional reformed backgrounds are abandoning those classically reformed confessions or either holding to the confession, yet changing up the doctrines in the confession. Here's one example. Uh, K. Scott Oliphant says this, and this, this, this quote, what K. Scott Oliphant is trying to do is he's trying to, he's trying to make sense of God and how he relates himself in time to his creation. This is what he says. Hear this. And see if you can catch the errors. God freely determined to take on attributes, characteristics, and properties that he did not have. God freely determined to take on attributes, characteristics, and properties that he did not have. It would not have without creation. And taking on these characteristics, we understand as well that whatever characteristics or attributes he takes on, hear this, they cannot be of the essence of who he is. Nor, they can, nor can they be necessary to his essential identity as God. Thus, his condescension means that he is adding properties and characteristics not to his essential being, but surely to himself. Okay, let's just unpack that a little bit. If, if what Dr. Oliphant is proposing is true, then the doctrine of simplicity is thrown out the window. I'm, I'm, maybe you caught that. If God takes on attributes, characteristics, and properties that he did not have and would not have without creation, and if these attributes are not identical to his essence, then in what way is all that is in God in God? If he takes on these things prior to creation that are not essential to who he is, then that must mean that God has non-essential parts or he has accidents that are a part of him. And also, Dr. Oliphant, by saying that God takes on attributes that he did not have prior to creation, means that he's dependent upon creation to have certain attributes. So no longer he is he self-sufficient, 
but he needs creation in order to add something to himself. That's not what the doctrine of simplicity says. That's not what the doctrine of, of aseity says, right? And this is disturbing. This is, this is the status of the Calvinistic evangelicalism theology proper scene. This is what's happening. They're, they want to, and trying to make sense of who God is, they want to soften up doctrines, classical doctrines that have been held for nearly 2,000 years. Friends, if Dr. Scott Oliphant, I mean, let me just break this down. He teaches at one of the best reformed schools in America, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly. But yet he's clearly by implication denying simplicity, aseity, and divine eternity. And he's not the only one. In fact, there are many out there who are reconsidering what our framers of our confession really meant in their doctrine of God chapter. What did our, what did our framers mean when they penned our, our chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity? And in their reconsideration, they've softened many things about God that the early church has held to so tightly in regards to who God is. In their best attempt to make sense of God and his eternal workings in time, they, they, they loosen foundational truths about God that have stood for centuries. Like I said last week, the classical orthodox doctrine of God is very much like links on a chain. If one link like simplicity is softened, then God's immutability suffers. If immutability is loosened, then God's eternity is brought into question. Whatever we say about God must be consistent with previous things that we've already said about God. Whatever we say about God must be consistent with previous things that we've said about God. That is so vital and so important to understand and, and also having a proper theology proper. <clears throat> the reason I say all that is because what we're going to talk about tonight is a necessary implication of all that we've been saying for the past two weeks. Two weeks ago, we learned about God's simplicity, which means that there is nothing in God that causes God to be God. All that is in God is God, which means that he is not made up of parts like humans, whether that be accidental or non-essential parts or essential parts. And if God is made up of parts, then that means that he depends on the parts to be, but also, too, he depends on a composer to put those parts together. If we say that that is true, then that kicks, that throws out the doctrine of aseity, because aseity says that God is self-sufficient, Right? Last week, we looked at the doctrine of divine immutability, which says that God doesn't change. His essence doesn't change. His perfections, virtues, or attributes don't change. And his decree or will doesn't change. Since God is simple, he cannot change. Since everything in God is God, and since God is perfect, he can't, he can't go under mutation or change. There could be no alteration in his divine being. Holding to the classical view of divine simplicity demands that you hold to divine immutability. If you don't hold to divine immutability, then you can't possibly hold to divine simplicity. For if God can change, then there's something he lacks and needs. And he needs an accidental or a non-essential property to be fully content with who he is. None of us will say that. None of us will say that God needs something to be content with who he is. But that's what people are starting to propose now. What I'm saying is we need to go back to what our writers of our confession meant 
in their chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. We need to go back to what the early church thought of when they, when they thought of the being of God and who he is. In other words, if simplicity, then immutability, right? Immutability flows out of the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's a necessary implication. You can't have divine immutability without divine simplicity. And you can't have simplicity without divine immutability. And today we will look at another doctrine that flows out of simplicity and immutability, which is the doctrine of divine impassibility. Now, you might remember divine impassibility because Samuel Renahan came and he did a, a, a wonderful discourse on the doctrine. Um, Paul Helm says this, divine impassibility is not some arbitrary invention due to the quirkiness of theologians, but it points instead to the intensity, mysterious character of God. Understanding even a little of such grander taxes our minds and stretches our thinking. Everything that I've been saying for the past two weeks has stretched my mind. Everything. I'm not saying that I comprehend any of it. I do not comprehend divine impassibility. And I don't, I don't require you to, to, to comprehend it either. But what I do, what I do expect is that because of the biblical witness, and because of the necessary implications of the previous doctrines that we've been learning about, there is enough information for you to apprehend the doctrine. And by apprehending the doctrine, that should move you, motivate you to worship. Worship God because of this. He says, he goes on, leading us to use language that scripture itself uses, negative language. Much of our theology, when we talk about who God is, is apophatic theology, is negative theology, speaking about what God is not rather than what God is. To say what God is not, the metaphorical language to portray the ways that God deals with us in creation and redemption and stretch language to attempt to do justice to God's supreme eminence. Divine impassibility is without question the most controversial doctrine when it comes to theology proper. If you want a controversial doctrine when it comes to the doctrine of God, study divine impassibility. Many think that the doctrine of impassibility presents to us a God who is lifeless, cold, and emotionless. A God who doesn't feel his creation's pain and who's not there with his creation. Others say that impassibility shouldn't be attributed to God because of the overwhelming witness of Scripture that speaks of God being moved to grief and love. However, the denial of divine impassibility is somewhat a new trend in theology proper. Like simplicity and immutability, prior to the 18th century, it would have been impossible to find a work of theology proper that didn't give deep consideration to the doctrine of divine impassibility. In the 17th century, John Owen said this concerning the doctrine. It is agreed by all. It is agreed by all that those expressions of repenting, grieving, and the like are figurative, wherein, notes, wherein no affections are to be intended, as those words signify in creative names, but only an event at things like that which proceedeth from such affections. Owen is only saying what all the Orthodox believed about God. It is agreed by all. Everyone holds to divine impassibility. Who doesn't hold to this? In fact, if Owen would have said that grieving and repenting are real in God, then he would have, been, then he would have gone against what 
everyone else said about God. He would have he went against every churchman and whatever theologian said about who God is, God's impassibility. To repeat what I've been saying the past weeks, the doctrine of divine impassibility is not a doctrine that's unique to Reformed theology. It's not a Calvinistic doctrine, but it's a Catholic doctrine, small c, Catholic doctrine. Like simplicity and immutability, it's a doctrine that's been universally confessed by all those who hold to the classical orthodox view of God. And like simplicity and immutability, many regard the doctrine as an essential confession that one must hold to when speaking about the being of God. If you want to talk proper about who God is, then you need to have impassibility nailed down. You need to understand this doctrine. And let me say this. It's important that we know who God is. Because the deeper we know God, the more and, and the deeper our, our worship of our God would be. That's, this is why this, all of this is important. I know for the past week, some of it's been high theology and it's been you know, deeply philosophical and metaphysical. But it's that for a reason. Because we have to use those terms because we're speaking about the divine. We're speaking about a being who is far beyond our comprehension. So we have to use language that are not, that's, that's not, um, that, that we're not used to using. And that's okay. That's okay. If it gets down, if it gets to the heart of the doctrine, and if it's nailing down what the doctrine is actually saying, then that's fine. But friends, if we lose the doctrine of divine impassibility, or even soften it up, Everything that we've said about God for the past two weeks goes out the window. And without getting into what we lose, um, a full-on lesson on what we lose, but essentially, if we lose impassibility, then we lose that essential creator-creature distinction that we must hold on to as tightly as possible. And what we're seeing now in the current trends in theology proper and the doctrine of God is people are wanting to make that gulf between us and creator a little bit more narrower. And by doing that, they, they tend to, I think, they do something that I don't think they're intending to do, but by implication, it's screaming that, that God is not, he's less like a creator and he's more like his creation. And we can't have that. We do not want a God who is like us. We want a God who is, who is infinitely um, other than us, right? Amen? Oh, good. So tonight I want to give a brief overview of the doctrine, and second, I'll give, a, I'll give our comfort we receive from the doctrine. So a brief overview of the doctrine, and then a practical application of the doctrine. What's the comfort we receive from this? Um, and I'll do that in two points. The first is, what is divine impassibility? And the second, our comfort in our impassable God. What is divine impassibility and our comfort in our impassable God? Divine impassibility and our comfort in our impassable God. And I pray that by the second point, you will be ready for, okay, how does this apply? <laughs> what, how do we live in light of this? Um, and, I, and I think you will. And I, and I think that you will find great benefit and comfort from this doctrine because it is a doctrine like immutability and simplicity that we can rest our heads on at night. You know, sovereignty is not the only doctrine about God that we can rest our heads on at night. You know, God's love is not the only doctrine that we can, that we can fully put our trust in and, and worship God in light of. But there's other things, and I'm saying it very loosely, there's other things about God that we need to know, right? And impassibility is one of them. In our Confession of Faith, chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, our confession says this, The Lord our God is but one living and true God 
whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. So I don't think anyone in here has any, any, anything to say about that statement. I mean, it seems pretty sound, right? That God is the one and living true God who subsists in and of himself. He's infinite in being and perfection, right? Oh, God is per- perfect and all that. His essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. You can't comprehend the essence of God. If you can, then you're divine. Um, a most pure spirit, invisible, we know that. Without body, God was out of body, right? We understand that. He's invisible. Without parts, we learned that two weeks ago. I mean, God doesn't have material parts, but he doesn't have immaterial parts, essence and existence. We know that. Passions? What is that? God is invisible without body parts or passions. I mean, if there's anything about this statement, that is the one thing that screams, that's not right, that's not correct, because our Bibles portray to us a God who is passionate, who is passionately grieving and passionately loving. Uh, He has a passion for his own glory, right? So if anything, that statement, God without passions, that shouldn't be there. And that's why I say this is the most controversial out of all the doctrine of God, because of that word passions. And the reason is because we don't know what passions is. We, have a, we think passions as love and, and, and mercy and grace and power and all that. And we, that is true to one aspect, but we'll explain it more. What did our writers of our confession mean when they said God is without passions? And there's a reason why they say God is without body, parts, or passions. It's a package deal. All of it is a package deal. You can't, you can't have impassibility passions and not have parts and simplicity. You can't have it. So this is why the writers of our confession were very careful to putting them all together. Body, parts, or passions, it's a, it's a, it's a package deal. The term passion, the term passion, and hear this, is derived from the late Latin passio, or pati, which means to, and this is the the definition of passions, to suffer, to undergo, or to submit. So passions, and I know this is stretching our thinking, what, passions? That's not what that means. Passions means to suffer, to submit, or to undergo. Now, when we say that, some of it sounds foreign, but a lot of it doesn't, because when we think of passion, what do you think of in, the- in theology? The passion of Christ, right? We say the passion of Christ, but when we speak of Christ's passion, we speak of his sufferings on the cross. We aren't speaking of an emotive state that Christ is going through. We're speaking about what he's going through, sufferings, not the emotion that's happening, but the mode in which it's happening, his sufferings. Passion, as we are defining it, is an undergoing. It's a happening to. In other words, an emotive experience, a passion is an emotive experience that brings to its subject a new state of actuality that was not previously present. I'll say that one more time. A passion is an emotive experience, emotional experience, that brings to the subject a new state of actuality that was not previously present. If you remember from simplicity, we have potentiality in us, right? We can be something right now 
And then five minutes from now, we could be something totally different. You can be something right now, and then two weeks from now, you could be somebody totally different. So we have potentiality. When we say that we are, when we, when we talk about passion, right, we're talking about the mode in which new actualities come upon us, right? For example, when one falls in love, when one falls in love, that is, that is an experience. Love, the experience of love is a passion, but because, because it's, because the, the subject, the one who falls in love, the reason he is passionate is because of the new affectionate state that comes upon him that he previously did not. So husbands, there once was a time when you did not love your wives. Or I should say this, there once was a time when you were not in love with your wives. Was, I mean, and husbands, if this is the time, again, when you nudge your wife, say, maybe he's wrong, um, he's telling a false, that's not gospel, that's not true, right? But there once was a time when you were not in love with your wife. But as you began to talk to her, you began to know her more, you began to fall in love with her more and more. So you went from knowing her, to liking her, to like liking her, to really liking her, to I'm in love with her, oh man, I think I want to marry her because I'm so in love with her, and I want to spend the rest of my life with her. That's how it happened. So all of those, all of those sequences, right, were alterations in your relationship with your wife, right? Your love for her kept growing and growing. And even right now, your love for your wife is growing and growing. If you've been married for five years, I mean, hopefully by this fifth year, you love her more than you did in year one, right? So there is change always happening in your love, in your affections, in your emotions. That is to say this, when we fall in love with someone, hear this, some movement and alteration has taken place in the human lover. Some movement or alteration has taken place in the human lover. So in this sense, passion, as we are defining it, does not so much mean those attributes of love and compassion and wrath, but with the respect to the mode in which the subject bearing those attributes comes to possess and exhibit them. In other words, love as love, compassion as compassion, and hatred as hatred are not in themselves, hear this, not in themselves passions. We simply call them passions because in our temporal, ever-changing human experience, this is the manner in which we come to possess these qualities through changes we undergo. In other words, you have the passion of love. You can undergo love. Your love is always altering, right? All the time. All the time. What we are saying with God is he doesn't have the passion of love. He has the perfection of love. God doesn't undergo change in his love, right? God didn't fall in love with you. God has eternally loved you. There's not a, I mean, if you've been a Christian for five years, by this fifth year, God is not, you and God are not like this. And that's why I don't like the, the term, I have a personal relationship with God, right? As if your relationship gets, grows more and more every day. It does from our vantage point, but from God it doesn't. Because God has eternally loved you. He's eternally been very fond of you. 
We have the passion of love. We undergo changes in our love. God has the perfection of love. He does not change in his emotive state. And mind you, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very careful when I'm saying God has emotions. Okay? I'm using that very loosely. I'm using that to help us understand what's going on. When I say God has emotions or he doesn't change any emotions, don't make a one-to-one connection. Okay? Like our emotions are just like God's emotions, only God's just a little bit of elevated being. That's not how that works, but I'm just using it for the sake of clarity. You are saint, and raise your hand if you're not. You are constantly undergoing love and also changes in the way you love. I mean, there's some days you wake up and you really love your wife, but at the end of the day, you really hate her. And that's just the reality. There's some days when you really love your work, and then some days you're like, man, I'm so over this. I can't do this no more. So you're always undergoing emotional changes, okay? Always undergoing emotional changes. You are not constantly loving. Now, there's some people who we think that are constantly loving, but when you get down to the nitty-gritty and talk to them, uh, you'll be a little surprised. I'm thinking of one person in particular, Joe. <laughs> but um, uh, So with, with that respect, the mode by which you come to love is called a passion. The mode by which you come to love is called a passion, What we are saying with God, and hear this, what we are saying with God is not that he doesn't have love, mercy, or compassion, but what we are denying is that God comes to love. Does that make sense? God doesn't come to love. We are denying that God doesn't undergo the virtue of loving. He doesn't love by virtue of an attribute called love that gives him love, right? That aids to his ability to love. But what does our Bible say? God is love, right? It's in virtue of God that God loves. And since God is love and the love of God is one with his essence, then I must mean that his, his love is unchanging because he's unchanging. He doesn't come to mercy or compassion. He's eternally merciful. He's eternally compassionate. So in summary, passion is a modal term denoting the manner in which some affections come upon creatures. So now let's answer, what is divine impassibility? We know what passion means. It's an undergoing. It's a happening to. It's a, it's a suffering. God doesn't have that. We do. Now what's divine impassibility? Let's put it all together. The New Catholic Encyclopedia provides a standard definition of divine impassibility. It's a great definition. Hear this. Impassibility is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of state, and hear this, whether acted freely from within or affected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. Now, that's a mouthful. I understand that, but we're going to break down a a little bit. As this statement indicates, the key ingredient of impassibility doctrine, of the impassibility doctrine, is that God cannot experience any change in his intrinsic state of being. That's the basic baseline definition, that God cannot experience any change, whether in his inner being or from his creation. God can't experience, and then you want to add emotions to that. He can't have emotional changes in his inner being or or it can't be caused by his creation. Meaning, in God's essence, and we learned this last week, in God's essence, in his nature, God cannot experience or undergo emotional changes of state. He cannot undergo emotional changes of state. 
God doesn't move from emotive state A to emotive state B like we do. We go from this emotion and then we go to this emotion. God is not on that emotional roller coaster like we are. We change every day. More specifically, our emotions change every day. There are some days when you are happy and there are some days when you are sad. Our nature is constantly changing emotionally. There's some days when I'm sure you've been in your room and for no apparent reason, you've just been sad. And then for no apparent reason, you suddenly turn happy. So you are you are constantly in your inner being changing emotionally, right? What we are saying with God is there is no emotional change that happens in his divinity, in his essence, Because if there was some type of change, emotional change that happens in God, then God is not immutable, right? Then that must mean that he changes in some way. Then he's mutable. He has the ability to change. But since God is immutable, meaning he can't change, then there can't be any change that happens in God, specifically emotionally. God can't undergo emotional change in his inner being. Divine impassibility also says that God's creation can't act emotional change upon God. Again, the new, the new uh, Catholic Encyclopedia says this. God is said not to experience inner emotional changes of state, and this is where we get this from, and acted freely from within or affected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. Now, after this, after all of this, you're going to read this, and this is going to be, you're going to say amen to every one of these statements. Because, because this, is, this is the joy, and this is why we, why we worship God. Because he is not affected by us. There is nothing that we can do to affect his emotional state. This is where the term passion really comes to help us out. Because since we know passion is a suffering, it's an undergoing, then we understand that God cannot be acted upon by his creation. Let me give you an example. If you came up to me and you gave me $100, I would first hug you, I would probably kiss you, and then we would probably go out to eat to spend that $100 together. So you have the ability to change my emotive state, right? But if you came up to me and you slapped me in my face, you kicked me in my knee, and then when I was on the ground, you know, I'm hurting, you punched me in my stomach or kicked me. Moses is laughing because that's what he wants to do to me. Um, What would happen then is my emotion toward you would be what? Anger, rage, you know, I hate you, all those things, right? You have the ability to change my emotions, right? And, And this is not just, and people just don't have the ability to change others' emotions. When it rains, what happens? Your emotive state changes. You suddenly become lazy. You want to take a nap. You want to eat soup. When it's sunny outside, what happens? You um, automatically are happy. You're thinking about things that, man, you know you're not going to do, but you want to do them. You want to go to the beach. You want to, you know, do whatever, you know. So things, external things, have the ability to change our emotions, right? Whether that be people, whether that be creation, We all are being affected in our emotions by external things. You think about um, those 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 
commercials that they have when with the with the with the dogs and the cats that are um that are being abandoned and all that. Our emotions turn to sorrow, right? And mercy and compassion. We want to help them. But Sam Renhan also says that but we don't have that same one-to-one connection when it, turn, when it comes to people and their suffering. You know, um, hope God helps us with that. But that's what we are saying, that, that emotions come upon us by external things. What we are saying with respect to God is God can't undergo God can't go through emotional changes by being acted upon by his creation. In other words, nobody can cause God to be angry, sad, or happy. And nobody can make God love more or love less. God cannot be acted upon in any way. Like I said earlier, God is not on the emotional roller coaster like we are. His emotions do not fluctuate like humans. One day he loves us and one day he doesn't. One day we're under his wrath and one day we're not. Nor does he allow his creation to cause his emotions to fluctuate. You are not making God angry in himself. He's blessed eternal. But let's suppose God is passable. Let's suppose that God could change. Let's suppose that we could affect God in his emotional state to change. If God was passable, then he wouldn't be, as our confession says, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute. He wouldn't be most loving and most gracious and most merciful and most compassionate because when the writers of our confession said most loving and most wise and most holy, that word most is another word for pure or another word for perfect or ultimate or highest, right? But if God can change emotionally, then that must mean that he comes down from that high point of emotional motion, which is love, and he, comes, he changes to something else. He's no, longer, he's no longer that perfect perfection of what love is, right? In other words, we, we lessen God in his divinity. If God's emotions can be acted upon by our actions, and hear this, and, and I think this is, this is really, really important. If God's emotions can be acted upon by our actions, then in one way or not, or one way or another, we can't control a part of God. We can't control, just think about that. If, if God can be moved by us, then we have the ability to control God, at least control a part of God, his emotions. None of us want to confess that, right? So the doctrine of divine impassibility says that God can't undergo change in his virtues or perfections. God can't experience emotional change in his inner being, nor can his creation bring about change to his emotive state. Okay, so that's the doctrine. Um, let's now look at the biblical basis for the doctrine. The biblical basis for the doctrine. Now, just like simplicity and immutability, we won't find a text word for word that says God is impassable. God doesn't go undergo change. I think there are some texts that get close to that. But the way we come to the doctrine of impassibility is by the necessary implications of other doctrines, which is immutability, simplicity, aseity. Um, but let's just look at Acts 14. Let's open our Bibles. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts 14. Um, and for the sake of context, I'm going to read, I'm going to begin in verse eight and I'm going to go down to verse 15. Acts 14 Verse 8, hear this. 
Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never had walked, never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice saying in Lyconium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So here in the context, we have Paul preaching and he heals a man. And then suddenly the crowd say, wait a minute, something spectacular has happened. The gods have come down in the likeness of Barnabas and Paul, right? And they named them. Zeus and Hermes. If you don't know, Zeus and Hermes are Greek gods. So they think that these Greek gods have come down in the likeness of man, and they are, Paul and Barnabas are the incarnation of Zeus and Hermes. They also want to offer sacrifices, and they want to worship God, or worship Paul and Barnabas as God. But let's go back to one verse that sticks out. Men, why are you doing this? Verse 15, men, why are you doing this? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Friend, that little section right there has a world of theology in it. But let's just break that down. What's happening here? You might ask, how in the heck do you get divine impassibility from this? When Paul says we are of like nature as you, hear this. When Paul says we are of like nature as you, the ESV doesn't do a good job in translation. Anyone have a King James version? Just a King James, not a new King James. King James, anyone? Ray, I know you don't have a King James no more? Oh, gosh. It's cold in hell. Because <laughs> you, you are a King James dude. Okay. Um, <laughs> when Paul says we are, we are of like nature as you, the ESV doesn't do a good job in their translation. What it should say is this. We, are, we also are men of like passions with you. Not of like nature as you, like passions as you. That word like nature, homoi apathis, which is in Greek translates like passions. We are of like passions with you. What Paul is saying, yes, our being is not, our being is the same, but it goes more deeper than that. We are subject to undergoing passions like you are. That's what he's telling these people. Not just we have the same nature, right? We, we share the same essence, that one humanity, right? But we, we are subject to undergoing passions like you are. Our emotions are the same as you, and we are constantly undergoing change in them. God is not of like passions as we are. 
God is not of the same nature as us. And here, Paul is upholding that creator-creature distinction, which is important to upholding an orthodox doctrine of God. Paul is saying, God is not a perfect rendition of men. He's completely different from us. His passions are not like us. He's not subject to alteration or change. Again, Paul says, we also are men with the same nature or like passions at you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. What useless things is Paul referring to here? Zeus and Hermes, those Greek gods. Turn from those useless, vain Greek gods, those fake, false gods, those Greek gods that those people have been worshiping. He's saying turn from those created false gods to the living God, the one that's alive, that's on his throne. Those Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, they're not real. They're made up. The one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all the things that are in them, turn to that God. And it's almost as if Paul is saying what Pastor, or I should say what, what Pastor has been saying, Paul is, Pastor is saying what Paul's been saying here, what he's saying here. If you remember from our Genesis series, what did Pastor Antonio say? That what distinguishes the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, from all the other false gods like Ra and all the gods that he, the Egyptians worshipped was what? Creation. Creation distinguishes God, the one true living God, from those false gods. Because God is not a creation. He is creator. Zeus, Hermes, Ra, they are creations, false creations, made up uh, creations. So that's why it's important. He says, turn to the living God, the one who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. He's identifying the God of Israel, the one true living God who is creator of all. Turn from that God, from your gods, to this God. But also, it's important that he says, turn from these vain, useless gods and turn to the living God because, and this is, this is because the gods that you serve are homoiopathies. The gods that you serve, Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods that you worship, are of like nature as you. The gods that you serve, and if you don't know anything about Greek gods, the Greek gods are very passionate. The Greek gods feel the pain and the emotions of the people that are worshiping them. They feel their pain. They're there with them. Paul is saying, those gods are like you. We are like them. God is not like us. He is not of like passions. You guys see how this is all coming together? The God, the God that we serve, the living God, is the one true God who is impassable, who is not passable like the gods who you serve. And friends, we don't want a God like the Greek gods, like Zeus and Hermes, who can fill our pain. When we are drowning in the water, right, we don't want a God who comes alongside of us and drowns with us. We don't want a God who's, who's, when we're drowning, he's staring right at us and saying, I'm drowning right with you, and I understand you. I know what you're going through. I know your pain. I want a God who can do something about that drowning. I want a God who is firmly planted on a solid rock, who is not moved in any type of way. That's the God that I want. Just because God, just because we're saying God is impossible, doesn't mean that, that we need a God to, that feels our pain. 
I want a God who, 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 who doesn't feel my pain. I want a God who transcends my pain, who, who, who can tell me, what, who can show me in, in, in revelation and, and, and his workings throughout my life what that pain and what that drowning was intended for. There's a good purpose to this. That's the God that we want. We don't want a God like the Greeks, Zeus and Hermes and all of them. We want, we want a creator who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging and unmoved, who can see us drowning, who can pull us out and say, and who can pull us on that solid, dry land. That's the God that we want. Turn from those false, passable gods to the true, living, and impassable God. James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In God's essence, there is no change. His essence remains the same. And like, his, and like we said last week, since his attributes, his love, is one with his essence, God is love, right? Then that must mean that his perfections, his virtues, his attributes like love, power, wisdom, compassion, mercy, all of those things do not change. God does not change in his emotions toward you, in his inner being. You can't act change upon him. Since God is pure act, right? He's a pure actual being, and all of his attributes are one with his essence, how can God undergo any change in his attributes? If there is no potentiality in God, then how can God undergo any change? doesn't make sense. If God has potentiality, then God is like us because we have potential to change and, and, and do those things. Since God is immutable, how can his love move to something that it was not? How can he be more loving toward you? How can he lose love for you? And mind you, you know the basis, the reason, the basis of, your, of, the, of God's love for you, the, the foundation of that love is found in the love that he has in himself. The love that he has for himself is simple, immutable, unchanging. That means that his love for you is simple, immutable, and unchanging. That's the basis of the love that he has for us. It's found in the love that he has for himself. Mind you, he loves us, not in and of ourselves, but in Christ. He loves us in Christ, not in and of ourselves. How can there be any potentiality in his love or mercy if God is pure act, if God is perfect? So the doctrine of divine impassibility says that God can't undergo change in any any way, uh, specifically emotionally. So now, now that your brain has been kind of messed up a little bit, now the hamster is, you know, slowing down, what is the comfort that we receive from this doctrine? What, what, how do we live in light of this doctrine? The comfort that we receive from this doctrine, how we worship God in light of this doctrine, we worship God because he is not like us. These are the sermons that, that, should, move your, that, should, that should move you to worship. These are the sermons that, that your eyes should be glued to the words that are being spoken right now. Because we don't want sermons that are about us. We want sermons that are about God. And, and we want sermons that teach us how God transcends who we are. That we can place all of our trust and faith in him. We worship God because he is not like us. And the doctrine of divine impassibility reminds us of the great distance between God and man. 
that the God of heaven and earth is not like man. He's not like the Greek gods. He is transcendent and far above us. The doctrine of divine impassibility tells us that God is not a man who repents or grieves. He doesn't feel sorrow for what he has done or lose his sleep because he made a bad decision. And friends, all of those passages that say that God grieves and things like that, I, I spoke a little bit about that last week, but God is accommodating himself to our language. If he were a man, this is how he would feel. They speak more about his actions rather than his being. But he doesn't feel sorrow. He doesn't lose sleep because he made a bad decision. God doesn't love us one day and the next day hate us. He's eternally unchanging in all that he is. And quite frankly, I want a God that is like that. I don't want a God who is passable. I want an impassable God. Friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want a God who's not on the emotional roller coaster like I am. I want a God who is constantly never changing. I don't want a God who is constantly changing his mind. I don't want a God that looks at our situations and says, oh man, what did I do? And then steps in and does something about it. As people like to say, God's going to make a way. God's going to step in. And he's going to help your, your, whatever you're going through. God has decreed what you're going through for a special purpose. To sanctify you, to conform you more to the image of his son. I want a God whose attributes are simple, eternal, infinite, and immutable. And the doctrine of divine impassibility preaches, screams that truth to us. That's the type of God that we want. The comfort we receive from this doctrine can be seen in Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is telling these, these Israelites who have been who have been trading their allegiance to God, to their, to their pagan overlords, their overseers. They, they've been offering lame and sick sacrifices to God. They're not giving God what he's properly due. They're questioning the love of God. And friends, how often is that you? Constantly we are changing our allegiance from God to vain things. And constantly when we are going through something, just like Israel was at that time, we question the mercy, the love, the compassion, and the justice of God. And here God reminds these Israelites that I do not change. And, the, and, the, and, and by you not being consumed testifies that I do not change. Yes, you do not love me right now. Your love for me has changed. My love for you has been eternal. It has never changed. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. John Owen says this on the triune, God, on the, on the triune love of God. On whom he fixes his love, it is immutable, unchangeable. It does not grow to eternity. It is not diminished at any time. It is an eternal love that had no beginning, that, has, that shall have no ending, that cannot be heightened by any act of ours, that cannot be lessened by anything in us. And after all of this, I love what Owen says. He said, I just gave you something that, that's rich, that, that's profound. And here he says, I say it itself. It is thus. I just gave you a theology about God's love, but I can't even form a conception in my mind about God's love because it transcends my whole thinking. It's a mysterious, it's, God's love is mysterious, but we don't agonize over mystery. We adore them. 
We worship God because he is far beyond us. He he transcends our thinking. We adore God because he is mysterious. And that's the joy of eternity. It will be a never-ending class on theology proper. We will be learning about God day after day. And friends, right now, if, if you don't enjoy this, then how are you going to enjoy heaven? This is the joy of eternity. Knowing about God and then doing something about it. Worship. Saints, the doctrine, this is, that's the doctrine of divine immutability and impassibility. We can't take away God's love for us. We can't heighten or lessen God's love by any act of ours. God can't be moved upon his creation. God's love for us, saints, began in eternity past and will have no end and will not change. Saints, the impassibility of God is not just for the scholarly. It's not just some philosophy and metaphysics that's mixed in with with Bible verses. But the doctrine of divine impassibility is the deepest counsel to the burdens of our fragile hearts. Maybe you've come today thinking that God is mad at you. Maybe maybe you don't feel God's love toward you anymore. Saints, is that, if, if that is you, if you've come and you've, and you've said that, then you don't understand how rich God is. You have a very low view of who God is. His love for you hasn't changed. It might be currently demonstrated. His love for you might be currently being demonstrated by putting you through a trial, but, but that trial is, is there to sanctify you. And isn't that not loving? His love for you hasn't changed. Your love for him changes. Your perspective changes about him. His love for you doesn't alter. It might be... So that's, that's, the, that's the comfort we receive. The, 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 the doctrine of divine impassibility causes us to trust God even more. We can trust in all of God's promises to us because he cannot change. And lastly, the biggest comfort we receive from the doctrine of divine impassibility is since God can't go through mood swings, since he's not on that emotional roller coaster like we are, since God doesn't undergo emotive changes, then there will never, ever, ever in eternity in a million gazillion years, there will never be a time when he will be angry with us for no apparent reason and place us under his condemning justice, which leads to his wrath. There will never come a day when he says, I unjustify you because I'm angry with you or because I want to. Because if he unjustifies you, then he unjustifies Christ. There will never come a day when he says, I will unjustify you. But saints, as long as we are in Christ, as long as we are kept by Christ, by the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit... We can trust in our immutable and passable God that on the last day, as long as we are in Christ, that our justification in Christ will not be overturned. You can have confidence right now, Christian, or non-Christian. You can have confidence right now that God will justify you. And on the last day, that gavel will bang and you will be justified in Christ. You can, you can trust that. We can trust in our immutable and passable God that one day that he will declare us innocent, united in Christ and justified in him. 
I close with the words of Henry Light in his famous hymn, Abide With Me. And I hope that this is our, this is what we have on our hearts and our lips and on our minds as we leave. Swift to its close, close abids out life's little day. Earth's joy grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Let's pray. Father, I know that that was a, a lot. But Lord, you are worthy of it all. And this one little 45 minute or an hour talk doesn't rightly do justice to your immutability and your impassibility. I know that I can spend an eternity speaking about your impassibility. And I do not comprehend this. But Lord, nor do I want to. It's just, it's just too much for me to handle. Thank you for loving me in spite of myself. Thank you for sending your son in the likeness of man born under the law to redeem those for dying for us, for rising for us, for now interceding at the right hand. I don't know why you do it. I don't know why you still love me, but I know that you cannot deny yourself. And I know that you are unchangeable. So, Lord, I worship you for your unchangeableness. I worship you for your impassibility, that there is nothing that I can do that can cause you pain, that can grieve you. There's nothing that I can do, no act of mine that can cause you to love me more because your love is perfect. Help me, Lord. Help me think about you in ways that are proper. Help me think about you in ways that, in ways that you have prescribed yourself to us in your word. Lord, I pray that that was some use for your people. And I pray that as we go on throughout the weeks and throughout the months, the years, and to eternity, we will remember this teaching that God is impassable, that he is immutable, that he is simple. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.